Today's case is one of the most baffling and convoluted murders I've ever heard of. It's a case that reads like an Agatha Christie novel and even features a plot twist almost too weird to be true. When a man turns up murdered after a night out at a local bar, police soon find an entire list of suspects, all of whom have the means and the motive to murder. This is the murder mystery of Billy Greenwood. Well, howdy there, strangers. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to Beers with Queers, the podcast where I research a case and Brad and potentially you guys hear it for the first time. So today's a special occasion as we're officially on episode 10. So we're finally in the double digits. You know, it's crazy to think that's already been that long, you know, nine weeks. It's not technically that long, but it feels like yesterday we were already on just episode one. So... That's one thing this podcast is already great for. It's letting me know just how fast time flies by, which is both exciting and uh, terrifying at the same time. So to honor this special occasion, today we're going to be talking about a case that I'm almost positive none of you have heard of, and especially you. I found it when just Googling and researching cases, and it immediately jumped out at me. And so I began to you know, dig a little deeper, researching some more, and it's kind of shocking just how little this case has been covered. I mean, I, like I couldn't find a single podcast or YouTube video covering it. And uh, there is one of those investigation like true crime shows on Discovery like 10 years ago that did an episode on it. But other than that, it's pretty not well documented. And of course, it's not. I'm not bragging or anything like we're the first to cover it or anything. But it is just interesting when you always find a case that you can't find a like a million podcasts or things covering it. And so it's... Uh, Interesting to get to hopefully bring it to you guys for the first time and, you know, bring awareness to it. Well, I'm excited to hear it. Well, then let's just jump right into it. So today, so to start off right off the bat, this case is twisty. And that's one of the things that's made it stick out to me and surprised me about it wasn't covered as much is because it is like a roller coaster ride, twist after twist. So today we are covering the murder of Billy Greenwood. And just a side note here, the names of everyone in this case has been changed due to, of course, privacy reasons. The only names that haven't been changed are the names of the victim, Billy Greenwood, and his killer or killers. So let's uh, let's figure it out. On the night of April 30th, 1995, in Portland, Maine, at a local bar, a 36-year-old machinist by the name of Billy Greenwood finishes his last couple of sips of beer right as last calls announced around 1 a.m. And people begin to start making their way out to the exit. Billy says his goodbyes to the bartender before heading out the door. But he would never make it home, and that would be the last time anyone saw Billy alive. Now, the next morning on May 1st, a father and son are out in a local industrial area searching for cans and bottles to recycle. Now, this was just a few miles from the bar Billy was last seen at, and it was there that the two stumbled upon a tragic sight. The body of Billy Greenwood lay sprawled out on the asphalt in a pool of blood. So police were quickly called and detectives arrived not long after to the scene to begin investigating. Now, their first thought upon seeing Billy's body was that he had probably been dumped there and, you know, murdered somewhere else. Because the area where it happened didn't seem like the kind you would murder someone at. I mean, it was secluded, but it wasn't like it was out of the public eye. And so it just didn't seem like the spot where someone would go if they're planning on murdering somebody. That also seems weird, though, to murder somebody and then bring them to a public place to dump them. That is true. And it's kind of like, a, yeah, you wouldn't go through the hassle, or especially somewhere so public, you'd like try to hide it at least. But Billy was out in the open in the middle of a deserted parking lot. And this is also a spot where local teens like to go and drink. And so there is the potential of always getting caught. So that's why it kind of raised alarm bells for police. Now, no murder weapon, I'm sorry, let me say, now upon closer inspection, they discovered that Billy had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest that went straight through his heart. Unfortunately, the previous night that Billy was last seen, the area was hit by a massive rainstorm, 
And so any potential evidence had been washed away, such as, you know, tire tracks or footprints or anything like that. So they're kind of left with nothing here. They did, however, find two pieces of interesting clues in the form of a lighter and an unlit cigarette laying just beside Billy's body, which of course suggested to police Billy was caught off guard as he was attempting to smoke. Now, no murder weapon was found at the scene, but when police lifted Billy up to check his back, they found a spent shell casing caught between his back and his shirt. It belonged to a 30 caliber bullet. That is the kind often fired from high caliber hunting rifles. So although this was a great start as it told them what type of gun Billy was murdered with, it also raised a lot of questions in the process because this is not the kind of gun you would use for a close range murder in a parking lot. You know, it was unique and it was interesting detail that detectives made sure to keep secret to help them identify the killer in the future when they continue their investigating. Because like I said, you know, if you hear someone gets shot in a parking lot, you think a handgun, you don't think a high-caliber rifle. Now, Billy's body was taken for an autopsy, and pretty soon it became clear that Billy was not shot at close range. There were no burns around the bullet wound that would suggest the rifle was close to his chest, which of course led police to believe that it's possible he was shot by a long-distance sniper and made this case start looking more like an assassin an assassination. That's still weird, though, that he would have the casing in his shirt when he was shot from a long range. I'm sorry, when I say casing, not the, the actual bullet that killed him was in between his shirt. I said casing, I apologize for that. I meant the actual bullet was caught between his back when it was exiting and his shirt caught it. And so the bullet was still completely intact and it even had the like rivets from the gun in it. Okay, that makes a <laughs> lot more sense because I thought, wow, okay, he was shot with a rifle at close enough range where a casing come out and got caught in his shirt. I thought, this is this is wild already. No, So you can tell how much I know about guns. My bad. I meant the bullet itself was caught between his back and the shirt. And so police, it was actually a pretty good smoking gun because it had the rivets in it from the actual gun. So they said if they did find the gun, potential gun, they could match it 100%. So now, of course, like I was saying, this led police to believe that he had the potential of being shot from a distance by a sniper. And the only clear line of sight to the parking lot was a cemetery a short distance away. So police go out there with metal detectors and a dog to search for any potential clues, such as spent shell casings. That's the shell casings. But unfortunately, they turned up nothing. Now, police also found Billy's driver's license on him and quickly notified his brother and father to tell them what had happened. The family was extremely close, and Billy's dad would later describe him as the sweetest kid and that he would always call his mom every single day just to see how things were going and to talk. Now, Billy was a veteran and served as a U.S. Army private for several years, and he was recently divorced and described as a dedicated and loving father to his four kids, two girls and two boys. So now at this point, Police decided to take a step back, and they decided to retrace Billy's steps the night of his murder. Police first went and spoke to the last person in Billy's life he had spoken to that day, and that was his ex-wife, Patty, with of whom he had only very recently reconciled with. And that day, he told her that he was going to his usual hangout spot and favorite bar in Westbrook. However, that bar was closed at the time due to renovations, and instead, Billy decided to hitchhike into town and go to a bar on Portland Street, the last place where he would be seen alive. Now, several patrons and the bartenders remember seeing Billy that night, and they mentioned how he didn't seem to be a shy dude, and he was talking and chatting up multiple people throughout the night. The bartender did mention how just before 1 a.m., Billy asked him to phone a cab for him, and he did. However, when the cab arrived, Billy told the bartender that he was all set and no longer needed the cab before walking out the front door, never to be seen alive again. Now, of course, that immediately led police to believe that he must have gotten a ride more than likely from his killer. So police decided to start going down the list of patrons who were at the bar the night that Billy was murdered. And this is where things start to get a little complex. See, this bar was already known to be kind of a haven for the more rough around the edges crowd of Portland, Maine, you know, more criminal oriented members of Portland. And pretty soon it was discovered that several had a grudge or issue with Billy Greenwood. Police decided to start with the most obvious of the suspects that were already, they were already very, very, they were already very familiar with due to prior crimes. And they were two brothers named Vic and Ronnie Bickman. Now both brothers already had a long 
criminal record, ranging from theft, drugs, robbery, assault, pretty much anything you can think of, they did it. So, you know, they were very, um, very familiar, very friendly with the cops and a lot of other criminals within the Portland area. But now, as it turns out, Billy was also very familiar with the brothers, too, and the trio had actually grown up together. Billy eventually began to help sell narcotics for the brothers as they got older, and business was booming. Until, one day, Billy brought a potential buyer to meet with Vic about scoring some drugs, but unbeknownst to both of them, the buyer was actually an undercover cop who who busted both of them. Vic would be charged and sentenced to four years in prison, while Billy only got off with a possessions charge, and so he only got three years, but was eventually released after one year for good behavior. But now, of course, due to Billy's lighter sentence, Vic immediately began to suspect that Billy was actually a rat and had him set up, so the bad blood was already forming between the two. And on the night of Billy's murder, both brothers were at the bar when Billy arrived, and they were fucking furious at the sight of him. They began to go around to the other bar goers and questioning them all as to why they were talking to Billy, even though he was a suspected rat. Now, eventually, the brothers just flat out went up to Billy and confronted him. The trio began to scream at each other when the brothers telling Billy he was not welcome there and that they wanted to kill him. The bartender would later tell police that he witnessed the brothers leaving at the same time Billy exited the bar. This led police to believe it was possible the brothers forced Billy to get into the car with them, where they proceeded to drive him to the parking lot where he was eventually killed. So, of course, both brothers were brought in for questioning, where both denied having anything to do with Billy's murder, and said that they didn't even see him leave the bar that night. Both brothers started, stated that they received a ride home from the bar in a cab, and their families confirmed that they did return home at, around the time that they told police. You know, police still weren't fully convinced, and so they asked the brothers to, you know, take a lie detector test, and they agreed. Now, the test results came back inconclusive, Both brothers were shown to be telling the truth when asked if either of them killed Billy, but the test showed deception when asked if they had any information about who the killer was. So it, uh, it, you know, it doesn't look good. And of course, you know, lie detector tests are not reliable at all. And, but it still, you know, doesn't look good. If you know you're not going to pass one, don't take one. But now, of course, that wasn't enough for police to hold them on, and police did eventually track down the cab driver that gave the brothers a ride home that night, and the driver did confirm that the brothers were alone the whole time, and he drove them straight to their houses. Now, that eliminated them That eliminated them as the possibility of being the ones that gave Billy a ride home from the bar, but not necessarily the ones that killed him, because police figured that, you know, it was always possible that the brothers and Billy chose to meet up later that night afterwards. And so they were still on police's radar as pretty big suspects. But now, like I said, that wasn't enough to hold them on, so police had to let them go. And it didn't take long after the release that the Bickman brothers began to brag to everyone around Portland area how they murdered Billy as revenge and how they had gotten away with it. So that's, uh, that's our first two suspects. And so I'm about to go down a list. So this is literally when I say it reads like a a Knives Out mystery for those of you who've seen Knives Out. We're about to go down a whole rabbit hole of potential choose-your-own-adventure games here. It's already interesting because you have two brothers that are that have kind of failed a lie detector test because they know who done it, mm-hmm. but they didn't do it. But now they're bragging that they did do it. Oh. So. Just wait. Just wait till this next one right here. So now those are our first two suspects. Now, this was not enough for police to bring them back in for questioning, you know, the bragging about killing Billy, as there was always the very real possibility the two were just bullshitting and attempting to boost their own street cred. So they simply continued to keep an eye on them as they investigated other leads, and that led them straight to another suspect, Frank Tierney, Billy's former father-in-law. Frank Tierney. Now that is like a name right out of a novel. I think it's Tierney, but it is spelled like Tierney. So uh, Frank is the father of Patty. And now after Billy and Patty had broken up, Frank was not shy at all about letting Billy know just how much he hated him and wanted him to die. Billy's father would later say how Frank would often scream and yell about how he how he wanted to murder Billy with his bare hands. This anger towards Billy was actually born years before 
First, when Billy and Patty married against the wishes of Patty's family, and that kind of, it was like, you know, I don't like the guy, but my daughter's married to him, so I'll begrudgingly be around him. But the true anger formed for Patty's family several years into the marriage following a horrific incident. One day, seven years into their marriage, Billy and Patty had been drinking heavily when they decided to go out and rent a boat out on Sebago Lake. Billy was driving the boat, and as they were driving around drunk, Patty stood up just as Billy revved the throttle, and it sent her flying from the boat and into the lake. Billy turned the boat around in an attempt to go back and rescue her, but in his drunken state, he ran her over with the boat, and she became caught in the boat's propellers, which severely mangled her entire body. And when I say severe, I mean she was in the hospital for months and had to undergo countless major life-saving surgeries. Now, she did eventually make a recovery, but was left, of course, permanently scarred and with permanent epilepsy. Now, even though it was ruled an accident, Patty's family fully believed that Billy intentionally attempted to murder her, and this turned their hatred from him into outright murderous thoughts towards him. Which, um, I can see. <laughs> That's like a one of my like nightmare scenarios is getting falling off a boat and getting caught into in a propeller. It's not a fucking joke. Those things will tear your ass up. She's lucky to be alive. Oh yeah. Now, not long after the accident, Patty and Billy divorced. But it was just a few months before Billy's murder that he went to Patty's home and begged her for a second chance and to give the relationship one more shot. And Patty agreed to try. But now, when Frank heard about this. He was furious that Billy was attempting to come back into Patty's life after what he did. So police go to Patty's father's house and he consents to an interview, but then refuses to answer all the questions. He did allow them to look around and they soon discovered that he had a pretty um, extensive gun collection, including several high-powered rifles, all of which were taken in to be tested. When asked where he was the night of Billy's murder, he simply stated that he was at home with his wife, Beth. Now, police asked uh, Frank if he wouldn't mind taking a lie detector test, and he agreed. He goes to the station. He's getting strapped in, but at the very last minute, he backs out, claiming he has a medical condition and it wouldn't be right. So police then turn to the only other person who can back up his alibi, his wife, Beth. She, too, agrees to take a lie detector test, and... um. Failing it would be an understatement. <laughs> she failed terribly, completely and utterly terribly. She was shown to be lying about every single question asked of her, such as, was your husband home all night the night of the murder? Or do you have any knowledge of who killed Billy Greenwood? So police began to zero in on them as replacing the Bickman brothers as the prime suspects. But just as this was happening, ballistic tests came back on all the guns taken from the house and none of them matched the type of gun that killed Billy Greenwood. Now, of course, again, this didn't completely eliminate them as a suspect because police believed it was a very real possibility that they could have easily tossed the gun that they used to kill Billy with anywhere. Yeah, I wouldn't keep the gun I killed somebody with just in the house. You know they're going to run ballistic tests on them. Yeah, but again, there's no solid evidence tying them to Billy Greenwood's murder, and so police just had to move on and keep investigating. So now we have... Four suspects. Well, it did not take police long before they found a whole brand new suspect in the form of a convicted felon named Adrian Tierney, who just so happened to be Patty's cousin and shared their hatred of Billy for his attempted murder, as he thought, of Patty. Now, police became very eager to question him, question him after they discovered, wouldn't you fucking know it, he ha just so happened to be at the bar the night that Billy was killed. So he was at the same bar as Billy. Police would later find out that Billy and Adrian also exchanged words and had a screaming match at the bar that night with Adrian attempting to get Billy to go outside so he could teach him a lesson. Other patrons at the bar that night would also later recall that Adrian was acting very suspicious and like he was up to something and wouldn't take his eyes off Billy. When Adrian was questioned about this, he refused to answer any questions and went so far as to say he was not sorry about what happened to Billy and that he's glad he's dead. But um, there's a couple of things that really piqued investigators' interest about Adrian, such as um, the first was that Adrian was actually being investigated for a recent home robbery in which one of the items stolen was a thirty caliber rifle. 
the same type of weapon used to kill Billy. The other was that when Adrian's phone records were pulled, it was revealed he had actually made a call from the bar that night to Frank Tierney. So police began to put together a theory that, you know, Adrian possibly phoned Frank to tell him about seeing Billy at the bar and that the two potentially planned the murder with Patty's dad giving Adrian the gun to kill Billy with. Adrian also fell under suspicion after they checked his alibi. So Adrian claimed to have walked straight home to his girlfriend's house from the bar after closing time. But when police questioned his girlfriend about it, she stated that he, in fact, did not come home for hours after the bar closed. And when he did, instead of walking through the front door, he attempted to sneak into the house by crawling through an open window. And when he got inside, he was soaking wet. And remember, a massive rainstorm hit right when Billy was killed. Even with all of this against him, Adrian continued to deny having any involvement with Billy's murder and maintained his innocence. With nothing solid to hold him on, police had to let him go. So now we are up to five suspects. Now, it was around this time that police received a tip from somebody who was at the bar that night. It was from a woman who was a regular at the bar and who also happened to know Billy pretty well. She would tell police that she remembered seeing Billy sitting in a booth talking to a guy who she says was not a regular at the bar and who she did not know. She agreed to come in and work with a sketch artist to create a, comp a composite sketch of the guy she saw with Billy. So now the woman described the man as having a very round face with streaks of gray through his hair, but his most distinguishable feature was that he had very sharp and pointed teeth that she described almost more like fangs than teeth. So police took the sketch, and then they compared it to all the male suspects so far, but found that it did not match any of them. And no one else came forward claiming to have known or seen the man that night, and so was just another dead end for police. But now we are up to six suspects. So now, it's closing in on almost a year since Billy's murder, and police are still no closer to solving it. That is, until Billy's family received an anonymous call from someone who claims that Billy was murdered by a local biker gang because he ripped them off. His family took this info to the police who began to investigate and pretty soon discovered a local biker gang in the area who called themselves the Metal Maniacs. You know, it's catchy. Now, this gang had a history of violence and it was quickly discovered that Billy had actually been involved in a robbery of a home of a member of the Metal Maniacs in which he helped steal a very large stash, stash, stash of marijuana. Now, of course, most drug dealers don't like getting ripped off, and so police began to take the tip seriously, and they started to investigate the gang further, and wouldn't you fucking believe it, several members of the gang were at the same bar Billy was at that night. Although there were no reported incidents of any sort of confrontation between them, police still brought several members of the gang in for questioning. Now, of course, all the members denied having anything to do with Billy's murder and even outright denied that he had stolen anything from them. Of course, investigators called bullshit and all that. That is until they checked in with a member of their undercover task force who was actually working within the gang itself, and he confirmed that the gang would not have talked at all if they had actually been involved in Billy's murder. And so with that, with nothing to hold them on, police had to let them go. So now, we are up to seven suspects. Technically more because there was more than one member of the gang, but I'm lumping them in as one. The Metal Maniacs is suspect number seven. So now, it was around this time that Billy's brother Steve actually began working as a correctional officer in the local county jail. And he would later say how it was agonizing for him to not only think that Billy's killer may never be caught, but also the fact that his brother's killer very well may be one of the prisoners he's tasked with looking after. Now, eventually, several years would pass without any progress on the case, but during this time, Steve would get to know a lot of the inmates in the prison, and pretty soon, a lot of them began to come forward and tell him about how they know exactly who murdered Billy, Vic and Ronnie Bickman. Finally, after several months of Steve being told about the Bickman brothers' involvement, one inmate officially came forward and was willing to go on the record because he had actually been there the night that the Bickmans murdered Billy. The inmate, who remained nameless, told investigators that on the night of April 30th that he, along with the Bickmans and Billy, were in a car parked behind a coffee shop in order to discuss a drug deal when eventually a fight broke out about a fight broke out after Vic 
once again proceeded to accuse Billy of being a snitch and setting him up all those years ago. Vic then proceeded to pull out a pistol and shoot Billy right there in the car, in the backseat of the car. The men then drove Billy to the abandoned parking lot, dumped his body there, and drove off. So, I mean, it sounds pretty credible, but did you catch a few wrong details? It did not sound credible. One, he was shot by a high-powered rifle. Uh Two, this guy was arguing with them in the bar. Why would he end up in a pickup truck discussing a job with them? So I, I think I call bullshit on this one. This is one of those snitches. You know, snitches get stitches. Oh, all right there, Benoit Blanc. Well, you're right. <laughs> Police knew by the end of this jailhouse confession that the dude was a total bullshitter because Billy was shot a by a pist- not was not shot by a pistol at close range. He was shot by a high-powered rifle from a distance. So, of course, this is just an inmate that wanted to try and cut a deal for a lesser sentence. But pretty soon, a fucking lot of inmates started coming forward claiming to have inside information about Billy's murder. Because remember, the Bigmans have been bragging and telling everyone that will listen that they were the ones that killed Billy. And so the story spread like wildfire throughout the prison. And pretty soon, everyone and their mother was attempting to use it to their own benefit. But now, eventually, one inmate would come forward with a story that actually sounded legit. According to him, after the murder... The Bickmans went to an apartment on Congress Street where Ronnie Bickman proceeded to cut off the barrel of a long-range rifle before he and the jailhouse informant put it into a burlap sack and then tossed it off a bridge and into the Sheepscot River. So now police actually took this tip seriously because this is the first time any of the confessions mentioned anything about a long-range rifle, which did have the potential to fire a thirty caliber a thirty caliber bullet. So this was kind of their uh, smoking gun, to speak. It was the first thing they had in a while to, you know, catching the real killer. So investigators took the jailhouse informant back out to the bridge where he said they dumped the murder weapon, and they began to organize a, a dive team to go out and search the riverbed. But of course, it's been several years since Billy's murder, and the current had the potential to wash the gun away long ago. Police still held out hope that maybe they'd find something down there, But after a week of searching, the investigation turned up nothing, and they were forced to call it quits. So without the rifle, the Bickman brothers were allowed to continue to walk free. So uh, we'll do a pause right here. um, Who's your main suspect so far? I think it is a combination of the father and the cousin. Because the cousin calls the father... Mm-hmm. who could have shot this guy from long range. Mm-hmm. So that's my hypothesis at the moment. All right. And y'all listening, be thinking of your hypothesis too, because there is going to be a, a big reveal of who did it towards the end. Now, 11 years would pass without any arrests or concrete evidence found in Billy Greenwood's murder, but Billy's family made sure that his case was never forgotten or pushed to the back of the filing cabinet. Billy's father would call the investigator's office every week on Friday afternoon and ask about Billy's case. And he would then have detectives go over any potential tips or leads with him. So this family loved their son, and they were making sure that it was he was always in the front of investigators' minds. Now, finally, in February of 2007, police got their first promising lead in over a decade, and it came from over 1,600 miles away in New Orleans. Detectives would get a call from the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office asking them if they had any unsolved homicide victims that were found on Warren Avenue, which is the street where Billy's body was found. After detectives confirmed that the details were correct, the police would reveal that they currently had a man sitting in a jail cell who claims to have been responsible for Billy's murder. Now, this man was 42-year-old Lonnie Patrick, who on the surface had absolutely no connection to Billy whatsoever. But Lonnie was recently arrested for assaulting his girlfriend, and it was during this assault that he threatened to kill her and said, I'm going to do to you what I did to that guy up in Maine. I blew a hole through his chest and left him to die in a rainstorm. Is that what you want to happen to you? Lonnie's girlfriend knew he was originally from the Portland area, and so she quickly looked up online for unsolved homicides in the Portland area that matched Lonnie's description, and that was when she stumbled upon the death of Billy Greenwood, and she notified authorities. 
So now this kind of sounded legit, like this guy so far away, he knew the detail of who was shot in the chest and it was during a rainstorm. So detectives flew from Portland down to New Orleans to investigate the lead further. And by this point, Lonnie was out on bail. And so they decided to pay him a visit at his house where he, of course, denied everything. He denied ever saying any of that to his girlfriend and he denied ever murdering a man. Police asked him to take a lie detector test just to be sure, which again, remember, it's not like hard evidence, but, you know, just to be sure, just to see. And uh, Lonnie agreed and he took it where it shows that he was lying. At least he was lying when he told his girlfriend that he had killed a guy up in Maine. But something still didn't add up because he was pretty fucking specific. So obviously he knew about the murder somehow and detectives were determined to find out. And they uh, did some digging into Lonnie's background and pretty soon they learned that this was not his first run-in with the law. He had actually been arrested and served time prior to this in the Cumberland County Jail in Maine. And wouldn't you know it, at one point he even shared a prison cell with none other than Vic and Ronnie Bickman. Now, of course, pretty soon police realized that Lonnie's story is almost word for word the exact same story that the Bickmans have been going around telling everybody. But now again, without any hard evidence, police are unsure if there's some, there might be some truth to Lonnie's claim. Or if he was involved in any way, or if he's just repeating the same fucking story, trying to get street cred. Because, you know, that's what all these little Billy badasses are about. They're trying to get street cred. So now, we are at eight suspects. Police still have no solid or concrete proof that any of them were involved with Billy's murder. The case grows cold again, and Billy's family is left feeling defeated once again. But not all hope is lost. By 2004, the Portland police created their own cold case unit to investigate and examine unsolved homicides, and this unit quickly found success after they were able to solve a 20-year-old cold case of a murdered Portland woman. So, during the press release for the case, detectives promised to continue the fight to bring criminals to justice no matter how long it took. And it was not long after this that detectives would receive a call that would finally help them piece together the mystery of what really happened to Billy Greenwood. All right, so now, we're going to, before we do the the big reveal, we're going to stop and we're going to go back down the list of suspects. So suspects number one and two, Vic and Ronnie Bickman, two brothers, they, they actually grew up with Billy, and they were close friends up until a drug deal went wrong that landed Vic in the jail for a longer period than Billy. Now, this, of course, made Vic suspicious that Billy was actually a rat that set him up. The Bickmans were at the bar the night of Billy's murder and even engaged in a verbal altercation with them where they threatened his life. Even after being questioned by police, the brothers continued to brag for years about how they murdered Billy. But was it all bullshit just to boost their street cred? Or was it true? Suspects three and four, Frank and Beth Tierney, a.k.a. Billy's ex-in-laws. Now... These two were the parents of Patty, and Frank was not shy at all about telling Billy about how much he despised him, and he even wanted to murder him. They blamed Billy for permanently scarring Patty in a drunken boating accident, and believed he did it on purpose to try and kill her. Frank was very reluctant to take to answer any of the detective's questions, and even though he agreed to a lie detector test, he backed out at the last minute. Beth would go on to take one, and it showed that she was lying about everything. The couple also had multiple guns that were the same type that killed Billy. However, none found in the house matched the bullet that was used to kill him. Suspect number five. Adrian Tierney, a.k.a. Patty's cousin and Frank's nephew. Like Frank, Adrian was not shy about letting his hatred for Billy be known. He, too, blamed Billy for the boating accident that almost killed Patty and believed Billy did it on purpose. In a weird fucking twist of fate, Adrian actually just so happened to be at the same bar as Billy that night. The two had a verbal argument where Adrian threatened Billy and other bargoers would claim that Adrian acted suspicious the whole night and that he never took his eyes off Billy. Adrian was then found to have made a phone call to Frank from the bar that night and that he was also wanted in a recent robbery in which one of the items stolen was the exact same type of gun that was used to kill Billy. Adrian's alibi also turned out to be complete bullshit when his girlfriend revealed that he did not come home from the bar after hours after it closed. Suspect number six, 
A woman who was a regular at the bar would call in a tip to police and tell them that she knew Billy pretty well and on the night of the murder saw him sitting in a booth and talking to a man that she did not recognize. She talked to a sketch artist and they described a man as having a round face with streaks of gray through his hair and having very sharp and pointed teeth, almost like fangs. The sketch looked nothing like any of the known suspects and police were unable to track the man down. I picture that suspect as a vampire in my head. Like, as I'm picturing it, I picture him talking to a vampire. It very well could be. Now, suspect number seven. An anonymous caller would call Billy's family and tell them that Billy was executed by members of a local biker gang called the Metal Maniacs, who were very angry that Billy took part in a robbery of one of the members and stole a large sum of weed from him. The gang were known to have a violent history, and several members were at the bar that night of the murder. However, when police questioned them, they all denied having any involvement in Billy's murder. Suspect number eight, Lonnie Patrick, a 42-year-old man living in New Orleans who threatened to kill his girlfriend the same way he killed a guy up in Maine. Police flew down to investigate the man and discovered that he was from the Portland area and that he had actually shared a cell with the Bickman brothers at one point. But... Again, he denied having anything to do with the murders and even passed a lie detector test. So, all right. So, that's our eight suspects. So, now we're going to take a break and I'm going to ask you, who uh, who do you think is the murderer? Why? What's your reasoning? I want to hear your thoughts. Me? Yeah. I still think it's the father of Patty mixed with the cousin because... This guy was shot at long range, so I'm thinking, like, the cousin calls the dad, the dad snops the guy. Uh, That's my hypothesis out of the bunch. Okay, so it's a mix between suspect uh, three and then suspect five. Yes, I think they were in cahoots. I think that phone call links the two of them. I I mean, I'm sure he just called him and was like, hey, Guess what douchebags down here at the thing. Mm -hmm. But also the guy died that night. So that kind of leads me to suspect that, you know, if they're going to come together and do something about it, that's when they decided to do it. Okay. All right. And this is, of course, the time for y'all listening to come up with your theories because we're about to uh, reveal the truth. So um, everyone got their suspects picked out? It was Colonel Mustard. In the kitchen with the candlestick. So, and that's literally what, how this case plays out. <laughs> so now, let's jump back into the story. So we are now in 2008. It's been 13 years since the murder of Billy Greenwood. And police are no closer to solving the murder now than they were back in 1995. That is, until they get a call from the Cumberland County Jail... A female deputy who works at the jail calls detectives to let them know something shocking. Her ex-husband recently called her to inform her that he was the one who killed Billy Greenwood. Now, of course, this is about the millionth person to confess to Billy's murder, so detectives were obviously skeptical, and they took the call with a grain of salt. That is until the deputy mentions that her ex-husband told her that he had killed Billy with a thirty caliber rifle. Now, of course, this immediately piqued detectives' interest, and they were interested to talk to their latest suspect. So, keeping you in anticipation, that suspect was a 46-year-old man by the name of Stephen Cutting. Now, Stephen Cutting was a name that had never came up on police's radar. He was never considered a suspect, or he was not even known to have any relation to this case whatsoever. So he was actually, so Stephen Cutting was a counselor at a clinic for the mentally ill, and he had no criminal record nor any prior arrests. He had been married several times before and had one son. So detectives are kind of thrown for a fucking loop here. This is a straight-laced, all-around family man who is suddenly confessing to a decade-old murder and, you know, kind of placing himself right in the middle of this investigation. So their initial thought was that Stephen must be suffering from some sort of psychotic break or mental episode. And, you know, kind of just this that prompted a false confession. So uh, after doing some digging, some digging, they found out that he had a bit of a drinking problem and had recently begun to abuse prescription pain medication. So the man was going through it. But police brought him in for questioning anyway. They wanted to, you know, 
cross their T's and dot their I's. But this was they were still pretty fucking skeptical. So now I'll actually post a photo of Steven and you can see he's a pretty um he's by no means a large guy at all. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but Billy Greenwood was a very stout and strong man. And then Steve was this very short, very scrawny man who looks like he couldn't harm a fly. So there's a another reason for police are skeptical. Like this very small guy was able to take down this, catch this big guy off guard. With a sniper rifle. With a sniper rifle. Which makes things a little bit more level. It no even, matter how big you are, sniper rifle can kind of even the odds. It does kind of even the playing field. <laughs> So investigators began to question Stephen, asking him all kinds of questions like, if you did kill Billy, then how'd you do it? And Stephen just calmly responded with, well, I shot him through the chest with a single bullet. Only the killer would know that, which would be me. (laughs) So Stephen described the exact gun he used to kill Stephen with, I'm sorry, he used to kill Billy with, and it matched perfectly to the evidence, which remember was not made public knowledge. So now investigators sit up in their chairs because they realize, holy shit, this dude is serious and he is Billy's killer. So now their next question is, why the hell did he come forward? Because remember, police literally had, he was not a suspect at all. They had no evidence on him. His name never even popped up on their radar once in 13 years. Now, Stephen told them that he had actually seen news coverage of their solving of the 20-year-old cold case a few years before, and that he was afraid it was only a matter of time before they may have eventually found him as well, and so he wanted to go ahead and turn himself in and hope for a plea deal. Police had their own theory and believed that Stephen wanted to give his own version of events of what happened that night before any potential evidence contradicting it would be found. So... This is Stephen's versions of events of what happened the night of Billy's murder. Stephen said he was driving back to his apartment when he picked up Billy hitchhiking along the road. Once in the car, Billy offered Stephen some weed, and so the two went back to Stephen's apartment to smoke it. Now, Stephen told investigators that Billy identified himself as being a gay man, and soon after arriving at the apartment, Billy began to make sexual moves towards Stephen. And when Stephen rebuffed him, Billy became belligerent and angry, So Stephen just offered him a ride home, but as they were getting back in the car, Stephen made sure to grab his rifle to take it with him just in case. Once they were driving, Billy again began to get very angry and started threatening Stephen. Billy eventually made Stephen stop the car and he got out and began to walk away. However, Billy soon turned back around and according to Stephen, began making threatening gestures and moves towards him. Fearing for his life, Stephen grabbed his rifle and shot Billy through the chest before driving off and leaving him in the parking lot. So now, of course, his story kind of portrays him as being an innocent victim. You know, he felt his life was being threatened, and he had no choice but to kill Billy. But he was in a car that he could have driven away in. Yeah. And just shut the door and drove away. But now... Investigators immediately called bullshit because Stephen's story just did not add up at all with the little evidence they did have. So they created their own timeline of events, starting with the eyewitness sketch of a man seen talking to Billy in the bar. So, surprise, it was suspect number six. The vampire. The vampire. And I'll post photos, and he really does. He has fangs. His teeth are like, his canines are literally like, fucking knives and then the rest of his teeth are really tiny and small and so that he really does have fangs like a vampire but um no the woman wasn't bullshitting so police believe that it was in fact steven that billy had been talking to that night at the bar and that steven must have offered billy a ride home after he had already called for a cab now fam- billy's family said that there, this was not unusual billy was a very friendly and outgoing person and he never met a stranger in his life so Stephen began to drive Billy home, but instead to he took him to a secluded parking lot where police believe Stephen must have originally said they could go and smoke weed without being bothered. And Billy's family thought that wasn't that strange because they said Billy was very trusting and pretty much would go with anyone if he thought it meant that he would get the chance to score some weed. And police would also later find out that Stephen actually used to work in the building directly in front of the parking lot. And so he was very familiar with it. Now, in Stephen's version of events, Billy came on to him and he turned him down. 
But anyone who knew Billy said that that was complete bullshit. Billy was very much a ladies' man, and he had n- there was never evidence in the past to even suggest that he had a liking towards men, or that he was gay or bisexual or anything like that. But now Stephen, on the other hand, that was a different story. Because in his interview, Stephen made several passing mentions of how often he frequented a nearby park close to the bar, and as it would turn out, that bar has a history of being a place for men to go and meet up with other men to engage in a sexual tryst. So it's a pickle park. So police believe after Stephen parked his car, he began to make sexual advances towards Billy, to which Billy did not appreciate and told Stephen to back off. Billy attempted to get Stephen to drive him home, but Stephen refused, and so Billy just got out of the car to just finish walking home. And as he got out, he began to light up a cigarette. Now at this time, Stephen was married to a woman and was very much in the closet. But now, Billy knows a secret, and in Stephen's mind, he has the potential to tell everyone in town about how Stephen is secretly gay. So Stephen decided there was only one way to make sure his secret would be safe, and that meant Billy had to die. After Billy got out of the car and began to light a cigarette, Stephen grabbed his rifle and got out of the car as well and confronted Billy, shooting him through the heart. But there was still uh, one major piece of the puzzle missing. What the fuck does Stephen do with the murder weapon? Well, he revealed to police that he threw the rifle in a small pond located on his family's property about 40 miles out of town. He even told them that if they do find it, they'll find a bullet still in the chamber. Well... Police sent a dive team out to check, and there in that small pond, they found a rifle with a bullet still in the chamber. Ballistic tests positively linked it to the bullet that killed Billy Greenwood. So now police can say without a shadow of a doubt that they had Billy's killer in custody, except there was one little problem. Stephen is the only one alive that was there the night of the murder. No other witnesses or evidence to suggest anything else. And so it was his word against circumstantial evidence, and a dead man. But his word is that I killed him. In self-defense. Well, in self-defense, I guess, yeah. And so that's the thing he argued. He argued that uh, the murder was convicted in self-defense, and they really had no strong evidence to suggest otherwise, or not enough they felt comfortable enough that a jury would be able to convict him beyond a reasonable doubt. And so Stephen was charged with Simple manslaughter. However, the prosecutor did ask the judge to give Stephen the maximum sentence possible for the charge, and that was 30 years. So on August 21st, 2009, Stephen Cutting was sentenced, and it was a shock to everyone. The judge sentenced Stephen to only 15 years in jail, with only 10 to be served in prison, with five years of supervised probation, but he had the potential to get out early for good behavior. When the judge was asked why for his reasoning. He stated, The judge gave his reasoning for the light sentence as being because Stephen lived a crime-free life outside of this one incident, and had he not come forward on his own accord and confessed, then Billy's murder would not have been solved, and thus gave him credit for it. Which, I mean, yeah, I guess it wouldn't have been solved if he didn't come forward, but still, come on. He's only murdered one person, and after, besides that, he's a pretty good guy. He's all around good. I just don't do it again. You got to promise not to do it again, champ. And if you do do it again, at least tell us about it and we'll work something out. Yeah. Billy's family was rightfully pissed and they consider this a slap in the face to not only them, but to Billy and that justice was not served. So Stephen became eligible for parole starting in December 2014. And there's honestly not a lot of info about him out there, probably because he's in some sort of protective program now. But even if he was served his full sentence, which was 10 years, he would have gotten out in 2019. And so he is uh, out in the world living his life and moved on. And that's the murder of Billy Greenwood. And Billy had so many other people that wanted to kill him. And so that's the thing. That's why I'm saying this case is so crazy because it's like a fucking whodunit murder mystery book you had all these suspects and every single one of them had a much more i don't want to say valid because there's no valid reason to murder someone but had a more personal motive to want to murder him and it was none of them it was a guy he met by pure chance that night at the bar 
and he killed Billy because he was afraid Billy would tell everyone he was gay. Or a vampire. Or a vampire, which, again, I'll post the teeth. He um, he very well could have been a vampire, too. But this is just one of those crazy cases where it literally is, if you didn't know it was real, you would be like, that's a really good like murder mystery plot to some Lifetime movie. Actually, you'd probably say, boy, that's a cop-out. You just add somebody in at the end. But they happen to be the weird vampire guy that was kind of a suspect that you totally disregard, you know? So And that too, that's another thing too. It's like uh where it's the those movies where the killer is always that one background character that's in the movie for like three scenes. And normally when you see that in a movie, you're like I feel kind of fucking cheated because of course I'm not gonna suspect them as the killer because they were in like two fucking scenes before this. And so uh, I'm looking at you, Scream, too. Um, Yeah, it was just one of those crazy cases because Billy seemed destined to die that night. He was surrounded by all these people that had these different but personal motives to want him dead. And in the end, it was a random stranger that did him in. And so that is uh, the case of Billy Greenwood. That was a good one. That really was kind of like a murder mystery i could see them making something out of this but again they're gonna have to like change something because you would feel slotted when it turns out to be the crazy vampire guy oh and that's that's what i'm saying is like when i was looking at them like okay this case has probably been covered up to wazoo and so i was like looking at podcasts and stuff just because i want to hear like others people's take on it and i could not find anything and so so i was like really this is gonna be interesting and then just kept reading about it and reading about it i was like this is literally a fucking movie i want to say the other thing that's kind of funny about this is every time i pictured billy after you talked to about him a bit i pictured him as your dad my dad him looking like your dad (laughs) like a big Um, coal miner guy you know face wise no but body wise yeah i could see it and he definitely does come across as like I mean, obviously, you guys listening don't know my dad, and you, you're like, oh, why do I give two shits about my dad? We'll talk about my dad in other episodes. He has been framed for murder twice and wrongly convicted of it, but that is a uh, tale for another episode. But he is a kind of rough-around-the-edges coal miner dude, but he's a very kind man. He loves his kids. He's a big old dude. You just wouldn't expect that to be Jordy's father. No, but... It is. It's my padre. And we will uh, definitely talk about his story because it is a whole last podcast on its own. But until then, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you're still listening to us, thank you so much for binging 10 straight hours of just hearing us talk. We appreciate it so much. And if you guys enjoy us, please give us a five-star rating or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever it is you listen to us on. It helps us out so much, and we greatly appreciate it. If you want to see photos from this case, or even suggest a case to us, you can follow us on Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod, that's P-O-D, or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. And until next week, we will see you then. Stay dangerous out there. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>